Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, who has told us from the outset when he pursued the leadership that he is running for Prime Minister of Canada. Well, the talk is we may have an election coming up in 2023. And Pierre Polyev joins us on The Roy Green Show. How are you, Mr. Polyev? Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Merry yeah. Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. You've said Canada is broken. Mr. Trudeau's firing back at you saying Canada is not broken. I'm anticipating this is going to be a central theme between the Conservative Party and the Liberals. So how is Canada broken? Well, first of all, I did not say Canada was broken. He deliberately misquoted me. I said everything feels broken right now. And that the source of it is the fact that his government is broken. You know, he can claim that, don't worry, be happy, everything's fine. But look at the reality. Look at the, the statistics tell you that things are broken. We have 40-year highs in inflation, the fastest rising interest rates in modern monetary history, 1.5 million people eating at a food bank in a single month. One in five Canadians skipping meals because they can't afford food prices. House prices have doubled since 2015. In fact, it takes over 60% of the average family's monthly income to pay the mortgage on the average house, which is mathematically impossible for most families. There's 2.2 million people waiting in an immigration backlog. Um, We still have people waiting 10 months to get a passport. I met a guy at the airport the other day who actually missed his own wedding, which was going to happen in the Caribbean, because he could not get a passport despite having applied 10 months earlier. The number of uh, opioid-related deaths has gone uh, up by over 100% from 8 per day in 2016 to 20 per day. Um, this, uh, sorry, last year. So look, it is, uh, you just have to look down the, 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 the chronicle of all the facts and, uh, the, what is actually going well in Canada? Not much. Yeah. We've talked Under about that leadership. We've talked about the all these things, things on the program well are, 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 are things that everyday Canadians are contributing yeah. to. And, you know, the funny thing is he said, well, things are going well for, as an example, we have, uh, Atlantic Canadians helping each other out after the hurricane. Well, that's true, but that has nothing to do with him. That's because of the good-natured spirit of Canadian Right. Mr. Polyev, I only have 10 minutes with you, so I have to get to some issues with you. And I appreciate you coming on. And we've talked about all of these challenges that Canadians are facing, and they're very legitimate. The healthcare situation, our healthcare system is in absolute crisis mode. Uh, People are dying while they're waiting to be diagnosed. Uh, The carbon tax is an issue. Inflation the interest rates, they're all a significant part of the overall mosaic that we're trying to live with and live through in this country. So uh, you've said uh, in your speech to your party, you said the other day, it's time to stand on the side of the common people. I like the sound of that. Who are the common people? And what is the number one, if I can ask you what the number one issue to you is that really resonates and connects with the common people of this country? What is it? Well, it's, you know, it reminds me of my own story. I was born of a 16-year-old unwed mother who gave me up for adoption to two school teachers. They taught me that it didn't matter where I came from, but where I was going. It didn't matter who I knew, but what I could do. Um, that's the country I want my kids to inherit. 
Um, and uh, I, I, right now, there's a sense among people who start with modest beginnings that they can't get ahead. No matter how hard they work, they do everything right. You know, our young people go to university, they get their degree, they move out, they try to vote, but then they can't afford anything other than a 400 square foot apartment, which means they can't get married or start a family. Um, and so I want to re restore the opportunity to every single person who works hard to achieve their dreams and fulfill their goals. That's the kind of country I want to restore for the, the, the common people the people who work hard, pay their taxes, and play by the rules. Okay, let me just run some individual items and issues past you and hear your thoughts. Let's start with one of the most controversial pieces of legislation that we deal with, the carbon tax. Your thoughts? Against. Yeah, I know you are against. But how do you how do you put that into into play? How do you make that an effective part of the of your governance of this country? You do you just roll it back? What what do you what do you change about the carbon tax? Well, I would scrap the carbon tax and uh, I would uh, replace it. I would basically uh, pursue technology instead of taxes. We can. Uh, the provinces of the country already have incentives in place for large industrial corporations to reduce their emissions. Uh, the um, federal government should work to speed up approval on new carbon-free sources of electricity like hydroelectric dams in Quebec, nuclear power in Western Canada and uh, Ontario and New Brunswick, um, carbon capture and storage uh, in uh, the oil sands, but also in other related sectors. We should export more of our clean Canadian natural gas to help the foreign polluters close down their coal fire plants. We should produce oil more efficiently and with lower emissions and then stop importing 130,000 barrels of overseas dirty oil every single day. These are the things we can do instead. Yeah. Trudeau and Singh in the costly coalition want to triple triple, triple the carbon tax, which is going to drive up home heat, gas, and groceries. Canadians can't afford to pay more. The carbon tax is not working to reduce emissions. It's time for technology instead of taxes. You know, it's interesting. When it came to the issue of inflation, I'll ask you for your thoughts on that in a moment. But uh, I said when it first started to spiral out of control that inflation to me, this is a, this is a street corner definition. It's when the Canadian goes to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning and can't afford to fill up at either and that's the situation we found ourselves in. So when it comes to the reality that we're dealing with, with inflation and, uh, and interest rates, and you've talked about gatekeepers, how much uh, influence does a government and a prime minister have? I know we're short on time here. How much influence do you have directly on inflation and interest rates? What can you do? A lot. Um, and right now, the government's doing a lot of harm. Large deficits drive up both inflation and interest rates. They do this by bidding up the cost of the goods we buy and the interest that we pay. There's only so much money to borrow and only so many goods to buy. When the government is borrowing and buying uh, at an at ex exceptional rate, like the half trillion dollars of deficits Trudeau has run, it drives up the cost of living. So the cost of government is driving up the cost of living. We need to cap government spending to um, eliminate these deficits and bring down, we also need to get rid of inflationary taxes like the carbon tax and finally get the gatekeepers out of the way so that our businesses and farmers can produce more of the food we eat, the houses we buy, 
and the energy that we need. All right. Yves Giroux, who's going to be on with me in an hour, said last month that the liberals did not show fiscal restraint in their fall update. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that unless you can fit into the next answer. And this is my last question for you because of our time limitations. Healthcare. We keep hearing that governments need to throw or direct more money toward healthcare. The past president of the CMA, Canadian Medical Association, told me two weeks ago on this program that um, unstructured f- extra funding for healthcare is not the direction to go. What do you do about healthcare and how can we make it affordable considering we're putting so much money into healthcare on an annual basis already? Well, there's some obvious low-cost solutions. Right now, we, we bring in 400,000 immigrants to Canada every day, sorry, every year. Many of them have skills that we could put to use in our healthcare system, but uh, only 40% of foreign-trained doctors are given a license to practice in Canadian hospitals. Only 36% of foreign-trained nurses have the same opportunity. So here we have all of these talented doctors and nurses that came here uh, with the promise of working in the medical profession blocked by licensing bodies that prevent them from doing that job. Um, I want to sign a deal with the provinces to speed up the recognition of foreign credentials um, to have, for example, an answer for every immigrant that applies to work in a profession within 60 days based on their tested abilities, not based on where they came from. I want to put in 30,000 small study loans to help immigrant doctors take time off work to get studied up and get licensed. And I want to allow future immigrants to begin working and getting licensed before they even arrive so that right when they get to Canada, they can go straight into their work as a doctor or a nurse and serve our system. That is the lowest cost way we can add nurses and doctors to the system and give bigger paychecks to our immigrants. We have known for a long time that uh, that the uh, Chinese military are experts at uh, uh, electronic uh, spying. Back when I was ambassador, I would tell a Canadian uh, company representative, are uh, are you sure that your uh, systems are well protected? Because if you have interesting technology, uh, you can bet that the Chinese will try to uh, get into your servers and your computers. That's uh, the voice of Guy Saint-Jacques, the former Canadian ambassador to China. I think 2012 to 16, Ambassador Saint-Jacques was there. And uh, he said that on our program in uh, May of 2020. So it's, it's been going on. He also told us, the ambassador did, that uh, he heard from the PMO when he opined after leaving the Foreign Service about China that he probably should just keep his opinions to himself. And uh, another former ambassador, Canadian ambassador to China, David Mulroney, had the same experience with the PMO, this government's um, prime minister, his office, telling uh, Ambassador Mulroney basically the same thing. No, be quiet. And they weren't, and the uh, government, they backed down. They don't have to be quiet. They're private citizens. They could say what they wanted, but it is such a, a concerning reality, and we're so fortunate to have Sam Cooper to speak with, national online journalist, investigative for Global News. 
Um, I, I say this all the time. He's truly one of the very, very best investigative journalists in, in the world, in my view. And global news story this week from Sam, secret 2020 Privy Council office memo found active foreign interference network in 2019 election referencing uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Sam, it just gets it just it just gets broader, deeper, and more concerning, doesn't it? It does, Roy. Uh, the the revelations uh, in this Privy Council Office uh, daily intelligence brief document are that these are one of the records that uh, my community and intelligence sources uh, have informed me of. Uh, in recent months, indeed, probably the, the past year, I've been focusing on this political interference uh, investigation. And uh, it was a highly redacted document tabled for the committee that's looking into our global news and about 11 candidates and 13 campaign staffer, staffers targeted in the, the 2019 federal election. Roy, you know this has been very controversial, but what this document says, uh, it was read out in the hearings, was that indeed there was a, quote, subtle but effective foreign interference network. Uh, an MP read the, the only other line available uh, in the redacted document, which said uh, investigations into activities in the federal 2019 election reveal an active foreign interference network, end quote. So, Roy, uh, I can tell you that sources with awareness have informed me of uh, more of the contents of that uh, note. And uh, the stunning detail is I learned furthermore that it's 11 candidates in the greater Toronto area only targeted by the Chinese consulate. Uh, the allegations in this federal government document are that uh, this clandestine interference network includes community leaders, yeah. politicians, and those that are under the broad guidance of the consulate. So Sam, can I, can, can I just get into this with you a, a little sure. bit, bit by bit, piece by piece, because it's, it's really fascinating, but it is so disturbing. And I want to remind our listeners that Sam's excellent book, Willful Blindness, is something everybody in this country should read. The information that you find in Willful Blindness relates in many ways to what we're talking about now, and uh, it's just a fantastic read. So, um, you know, when Guy Saint-Jacques told me that, and we know it was a news story, that the Prime Minister's office told him and uh, Ambassador Mulroney, you really, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, you really shouldn't be speaking out as you are about uh, China and uh, what you're saying. That that raised a massive red flag for me at that time, and that I just have a more of a gut sense now that this is something that has spiraled, Sam, if not out of control, close to out of control, and it brings us to what you've been talking about, and that is China's Toronto consulate covert, covertly funded an interference network that included political staffers and at least eleven Canadian election candidates, and that's a head-on assault on Canada's domestic affairs. Now, as you point out in the story, some of the 11 politicians were unaware of China's efforts to influence, but others knowingly cooperated with these clandestine interference schemes. Are, are these individuals m mentioned anywhere? I mean, the redacting is, 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 a, is, a, is a whole other story. Roy, I need to be very clear. The, 
I've, I've obtained information uh, from sources with awareness. I have learned of documents, and there are many, many documents filed for the government of Canada. My investigation is step-by-step, step. and so I'll give you an example. My first reports pointed to at least 11 candidates. I wasn't sure exactly of the area. With this latest document that has come to the surface, and now the public can see it, there's no mistaking this document exists. There's, this was 11 candidates in the Toronto area only. Wow. Now, let me stress, I, to my knowledge, I have never seen a document that identifies by name these 11 candidates or staffers. And the key issue here is uh, Canadian intelligence will never, in, in high-level documents, reveal uh, those kind of details because that could uh, endanger sensitive investigations. You can imagine political parties uh, will be very close to candidates and elected officials that may be compromised. So these details aren't put out in high-level briefs. Yeah, but, the, the, but there are Canadian politicians and Canadian political staff who take, quote, broad guidance, end quote, from China's Toronto consulate, according to this 2020 Privy Council memo. This is from my sources with awareness. We, we need to be clear again to your yeah. listeners. That's the redacted version doesn't say this. My credible sources do say it. And Roy, if they're saying it and I'm reporting it, it's true. I know that. Yeah, I know that. And we're fortunate. We're so fortunate to have you, Sam, um, investigating. I mean, if I, was, if I was a bad guy doing bad things, I wouldn't want Sam Cooper investigating me. Um, but remind us, please, how China organizes and engages in interference in Canada. And under the umbrella, and we talked about this last time you were on with us, you did, Fox Hunt. That's right. And uh, I, every time I talk about this, I, we need to educate Canadians. This is a very sophisticated Chinese Communist Party system. It's run from high-level bureaus in Beijing. It's called the United Front. It's a communist, really, uh, for experts, a Leninist political, quote, warfare tool. And it's all about, uh, outside of China, attempting to uh, capture, that is, you know, uh, influence very influential, powerful people, politicians, business persons, academics, and get them to buy in. Buy in is the key word, buy in to China's uh, foreign policy. And so over the years, uh, uh, these, uh, these uh, United Front networks are run out of consulates uh, around the world. And so we have intelligence and security officials slowly, surely, insidiously working their way into diaspora communities that have in, in, in the majority of cases, these people want nothing to do with the Chinese Communist Party, but they're being leveraged, coerced, sometimes bought off, threatened to come into these United Front networks, which then proceed to infiltrate political networks, universities, all areas of society. And I can tell you, Roy, uh, the RCMP is now on the case. It's not just CSIS. There is great concern that this touches all levels of Canadian society in ways that we're only, I'm only starting to discover. Yeah, it's, it is so, I mean, it's almost like a novel that, uh, that, that you can't put down because, because, of the, because of all of the moving parts that are involved. And as you said, this is happening internationally. We, you and I talked about that last time you were on with us. And um, with, with these police stations, Chinese police stations, I mean, it's one thing after another after another. What is, um, Sam, what is China's fundamental interest in, in Canada? 
China's fundamental interest, the experts say, uh, is protecting the Chinese Communist Party regime. Uh, let's take a quick example. We saw weeks ago uh, with the protests on those extremely, uh, you know, brutal COVID uh, uh, restrictions, we were starting to see street protests. And uh, the Chinese Communist Party can't see uh, revolt against uh, its its edicts, or else uh, it feels threatened. So the same in Canada. They don't want to see elected politicians criticizing Xi Jinping and uh, his, his regime in any way. So if you can visualize it, the United Front is not only uh, uh, attempting to control its population within mainland China, it's using those networks around the world. And that is where these police stations fit in, because it's a, a presence, if you will, it's a flag planted on foreign soil. And the community that is diaspora communities are meant to fear the, the intelligence officials that are within uh, covertly working within those stations. With, so, so internally in Canada, you know, someone who's either Canadian or a um, permanent resident um, who has status in this country and is afraid, literally afraid, of what the Beijing Chinese government, communist government could do to them, maybe intent on doing to them, and lives in fear in Canada. And I just go back to what you said to us, what your sources have, have revealed. There are Canadian politicians and political staff who take, quote, broad guidance, end quote, from China's Toronto consulate. This again, well, these are your sources that have been telling you that. The headline of the global news story from Sam on December the 13th was secret 2020 Privy Council office memo found, quote, active foreign interference network, end quote, in 2019 election and referencing the Chinese Communist Party. Sam, as we're talking, I become, I think I'm becoming more aware of why you called your book Willful Blindness. Well, uh, the book, the book, Roy, as you know, you, I think you were one of the first readers. That was a really deep dive into years of research, uh, really uh, going back into the 80s in Hong Kong, uh, reading all the experts on Chinese spycraft and the way that uh, China, much like Russia and, and, and some other not very nice states, employ anyone to do their work abroad, including criminal networks. And willful blindness, uh, that, as I've told you before, that concept has been proven beyond any doubt, in my view, that uh, Canada's government, uh, and not just the current one, in, in, in many cases has, has either been uh, uh, bought in, as I say, or, or been sort of uh, leveraged or, or fearfully uh, fallen in with, with China's desires. And that's just not right for democracy. No, it isn't. And I'll say it again. If you haven't read Willful Blindness, read it. Read it. You, you will not put it down. So, Sam, let me talk about and ask you about another story that also ran on Global News on December the 8th. And uh, I'll just read the first sentence. The Department of National Defense, DND, says it's investigating contracts previously awarded to a firm that now has reported ties to the Chinese government as concerns of foreign interference in Canada grow. Talk to us about that one. Well, a colleague of, of mine uh, on the great global news team did that specific story. But but uh, look, it, it, it's very obvious to some people that uh, either the, you know, the, the government isn't taking a so-called all of government approach to, to vetting 
uh, risk from the Chinese Communist Party, which is the Chinese state, in in these uh, types of entities. I had done a story before about a company called NukeTech, which was going to have you know access to Canada Border Services facilities. An expert said, "Well, that hold on, that company connects to the highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party Politburo. There could be real concerns, as there were in other countries, that data." harvested from this high-tech uh, equipment could be sent back to the wrong people. And, Roy, that's a growing concern with these police stations. We have concerns in the communities where, where uh, you know, people that uh, living living in Canada for freedom don't want to go into their local convenience store and, and find out that that uh, convenience store is using facial recognition technology. How does that relate to your story uh, that you mentioned Look, the government should have learned by now uh, that when you're doing procurement, there has to be a very, very solid vetting on the company and its ties, whether they're very apparent or you have to dig a bit. And that didn't seem to happen with this one. And look, these cases just keep happening over and over to the, you know, to the extent where people ask, is something funny going on? So we have about uh, two minutes, Sam. What did, what what are the questions if I may ask, uh, what, what, what's, the, what's the key question that you want answered? Well, the key question ties back to, you know, what I, uh, we said at the start of the interview, that what I learned about this new high-level federal intelligence document is this is just the greater Toronto area with 11 candidates yeah. targeted uh, with a very complex network that's been at work for years. And so, Roy, my sources, even before that story, said, uh, you're talking about 11 candidates. We believe at all levels of government in Canada, we're talking down to municipal, school boards, indigenous governments, there has been penetration from, uh, from Chinese Communist Party agents. So where I'm going... I'm looking for names. Uh, we are working because we believe it's a responsibility to, to name the names that are wittingly, allegedly involved in these schemes. And I'm looking across Canada, and I'm looking at those deeper, more nefarious connections to the point where is someone involved in a police station, not only involved with Chinese intelligence, but in more nefarious type criminal activities. And Roy, if you've read my book, you can almost take that one to the bank. Canada. Terrible year for Hockey Canada, but a necessary year where we found out things that none of us suspected. None of us would have suspected what we found out about what was going on inside Hockey Canada. And we can go through the through the list, but you know what I'm talking about. I just want to read you this. This is um, from Global News. This is today. Hockey Canada's provincial and territorial members will vote today on whether to approve a slate of nominees to fill the organization's nine vacancies on its board of directors. Hugh L. Fraser, a retired judge with nearly three decades of experience at the Ontario Court of Justice, is the nominee for board chair. Former women's national team captain Cassie Campbell-Pascal has been put forward to fill one of the other eight seats. Hockey Canada's previous board stepped down in October amid blistering criticism related to the scandal-plagued federation's past handling of sexual assault allegations and hushed payouts to victims. So, uh, well, you know, we're doing a year-ender. We're talking about the, uh, the, the, the massive stories, the events that affected us all in 2022. We're doing it today and then we'll do it again tomorrow. So uh, 
I, I was fortunate to be able to reach out to Allison Forsyth again today from ITP Sport, and um, they're a safe sports um, organization. They consult with major sports organizations in this country, and more and more we're finding out how important this is. Allison, of course, a multiple Canadian skiing champion, represented uh, Canada at the Olympic Games, and was herself sexually assaulted by the former national ski team coach, after which Alpine Canada requested that Allison not reveal publicly what had taken place because it could hurt their sponsorships. Good God. Allison, each time I say that, each time I think about it, I think, where the hell are these people's priorities? <laughs> yes, I understand why you would say that. Really? Uh, I think, yeah, the reality is, um, you know, this hopefully, obvi- and hopefully, obviously, now we're stepping, and I have seen over the last couple months even, a real shift in organizations, Roy, which is the good news story of the day. Um, the shift being, we I think I mentioned this to you, but I used to have to go in and pitch our services for independent complaint management. And now the shift we're seeing, gratefully, is organizations understanding the necessity of not managing their own complaints based on their lack of expertise and ingrained biases. So that's good news. There's a shift happening towards the understanding um, of the need to use experts and have a lot of separation between the organization and these types of complaints. Yeah. I have to ask this question. Are they doing it because they didn't know or they suspect that they need to do it to keep their organization where they want it to be? Or are they doing it or some doing it because they feel pressured to do it? I mean, that's, to me, it's about motivation. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's a great question. I think that, um, honestly, I can only speak to the organizations that we're engaged with. Um, it's, you know, Safe Sport is a new body of work. You know, our company started only two and a half years ago to take on this issue across the country. We're the only company um, that does this. So I think a lot of it is awareness and understanding what it looks like to not be an expert in this field. And I think that the issues with Hockey Canada definitely highlighted that. Um, and I think there is always going to be a piece of humans that say, well, I'm a little terrified now that I might be one of those people that have to walk into that parliamentary hearing. However, I don't think they're saying that because they, you know, we're intentionally trying to do bad things. Um, I think that inherently when we manage an organization, you know, we want, we want to keep um, control of what that organization does and relinquishing control can be hard for people. So I'm empathetic to that. Um, and I think really the organizations are, starting to recognize what safe sport expertise really is and why they do not have it. Um, and, and the bottom line is I have yet to see on anyone's job description, you know, you're the accountant plus we may have you on a hearing panel to decide if someone was abused or not. So we've also put complaint management in the hands of people even internally where that should never have been their responsibility or their accountability. Um, and I, I feel like we're putting people in a, a pretty bad position of their own conscience at that point. Yeah. Can we talk about the sorts of situations uh, that you would encounter or that you would raise or that you would counsel on at ITP when you worked with a national or a provincial sports body? We know about the, uh, the, you know, the payouts that Hockey Canada was secretly doing, the slush funds that went on. And I said funds, not fund. Initially, we thought it was one. Then we found out there's more. 
and uh, and the resistance they put up to uh, to really significant change it was only continued and insistent public pressure, augmented by uh, the government pushing them as well, that caused them created that the, the situation that they find themselves in now. And that's let's rebuild, let's build it better, let's get the confidence of the of the people back, let's have parents not worry about what's happening to their kids. What sorts of situations are we talking about that you counsel about? Yeah, so Roy, it's 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 a lot. Um, and again, I don't want to, you know, I feel like I've, I've picked on hockey a lot lately, but it is a very poignant culture. Probably what I would believe the most dramatic shift is needed in the sports. You know, we work with over 30 to 40 sports in this country. So, Roy, the, the important thing that everyone needs to know is the forms of maltreatment that we deal with are bullying, hazing, psychological abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, discrimination, and harassment. And on the other side of that, Roy, as you know, is um, referee abuse, officials abuse, abuse by parents towards both of the, 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 the previous groups I mentioned. So it's, it's a lot. Now, what I want to share is less than 5% of the cases we see are sexual in nature. Um, and I don't mean that's good news. Uh, I think it, it, it should show, our, you know, show your listeners that we deal a lot um, with the other forms of maltreatment. And the reality, Roy, when we're dealing with athletes of the current generation is, you know, they're not always nice to each other either. And we do deal with a lot of bullying and hazing cases. With that, I'll share, I think it's very important that we look at this in two ways, um, and then I'll give it back to you, of course, but we have predatorial behavior, which is a very bad person intending to come into an organization, grooming and doing horrific things. And then we have normalized behavior. So when you take a culture like hockey, there's many, many things, inclusive of profanities being thrown around, racial slurs, bullying, hazing. Um, there's many things that have been normalized in that culture. So we are starting the work now. And by we, I mean, I know Hockey Canada, I know a couple people they have hired who are great individuals. So that is also good news. We obviously welcome an opportunity, but this is going to be a long road. And I don't say that to scare people, but I am just grateful that hopefully now they'll recognize that the work needs to start. Let's talk about the, the predatorial behavior. And that's been a major concern that where kids are present, or where someone who can be um, uh, approached and, and groomed and, and abused uh, is present, these predators will seek out these environments. And really, I mean, that's, sorry to get personal here, but that's what you found yourself in with Alpine Canada. And your coach uh, did that repeatedly with, with uh, you and, and teammates, and then they, uh, then Alpine Canada's concern was mostly, uh, well, please, Allison, don't say anything because it could hurt our, our, uh, our image and our, and our funding. So, how, how do you weed out the predatory behavior? I guess the organization have to really uh, put in place. I hate answering my own question. You have to put in place a structural reality where these behaviors are identified before that person becomes entrenched in the organization. Absolutely. So to be clear, um, I don't I don't work on complaints in our company. Um, it's too triggering for me. And, and also from a conflict of interest standpoint, what I do is I do education and prevention. So what you're talking about here is grooming, which is critical. And everywhere I go, I speak about it. Four stages, favoritism, personal bond, isolation and complicity. Complicity being where they make the victim feel like it's their fault. Um, and those four stages are a recipe, Roy. And until I, I'll be frank, until I feel like I came on the scene and, and I've already lost my voice this week, as you can probably hear from the amount of education I've done. Um, but 
we weren't talking about this. And when you have a coach, we'll use a coach as an example, um, and they are a predator, and they have too much sole discretionary decision-making, too much power, they basically can be puppeteers for this type of maltreatment because they're dealing with athletes that are incredibly vulnerable to that power, which was me. Um, and I'll say likely my teammates, I don't want to speak for them um, directly, but that's how I felt. Um, and I wanted to be this person's favorite. And I wanted this person to like me more than the other athletes because it made me feel like that's how I would make it to be the best in the world in my sport. So predators go after vulnerable people. And you never would have said to me, you know, back then I was one of the strongest, most assertive athletes in Canada. Um, and when my therapist actually said to me, Allison, you were incredibly vulnerable to this. I must mistook vulnerability for weakness. So we need to recognize that these children, and also I want to be clear that grooming and predatory behavior is age agnostic. So I don't want us to only think that this can happen to children. It very, very often can happen to adult athletes as well. And it's not always sexually sexual in nature. It can be psychological, physical as well. So these predators, they know what they're doing. They are also are incredibly charismatic. I always tell people to look for the last person you think it will be, likely someone who has been very successful, likely someone who's very charismatic. They do whatever they can do to groom and manipulate their environment for access to these people. So how I know about this is I speak actively to athletes every day about what it looks like to be active in the grooming process and how to help them get out of it before something horrendous occurs. So it's um, it, honestly, Roy, sometimes I feel like I'm on an island because it is incredibly complex. And one thing that's just come up for me recently that I need to dig in on on behalf of all of us is how are we investigating grooming? Because it's so nuanced in nature, it often doesn't have a lot of evidence and if we really want to stop these predators before horrendous acts occur, we need to figure out how do we catch them in this process? How do we sanction them, take away every right they have? Obviously, likely it could be criminal in nature as well. But I'm, I'm starting to get a little nervous that we don't have the skills in our investigators to really catch this. So that's the next thing that I really want to dig in and help um, educate on. Yeah. When you talk about being about yourself being a very determined athlete, you don't you don't become the eight time Canadian champion and for 10 years ranked in the top 15 skiers in the world and be an Olympic competitor without having that self-assurance and and uh, and, and confidence. And when the predators are able to break down that level of self-assurance and confidence and you describe what, what your situation was, that speaks to how insidious and how dangerous this reality is. Allison, how do people, how do sports organizations best get in touch with, uh, with ITP? So we are at uh, www.itpsport.ca. Um, if you want to speak to me directly, I'm very communicative. Um, I really love hearing from people. So Allison Forsyth, comma, O-L-Y on LinkedIn is your best bet to, to send me a, a message there. But um, we have to be smart now, Roy, and I will always say sport is still a beautiful place. And predators exist wherever your children are. So yeah. I don't want this to deter parents from sport. I have my kids in sport. We just need to be more aware. We need to be smarter, and we need to know what we're looking for. Allison Forsyth from itpsport.ca. Uh, Allison, uh, on LinkedIn, what, what is it again for you? Just my name, Allison Forsyth, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H, then comma, O-L-Y. Okay. Now, when it comes to the issue of 
And let's get right down to the, we have two minutes here, get down to the ground level where the kids compete. Mm-hmm. Hazing, bullying, as I said, it was always part of, of the equation. I experienced it. I grew up with it. We just thought this is the way it is. That's the way it's done. You got to take the towel, right? And it's just the way it is. It's not, is it? No, I, it's, a, it's a perfect example of cult, what we call cultural normalization or cultural conditioning, where, you know, I, I have, I will say, the privilege of educating and athletes about hazing and bullying. And also I deal with education of athletes who have been sanctioned from the, with those um, two forms of maltreatment. And, and Roy, the sad thing for me is many, many times, if not always, these athletes will say, well, Allison, we just didn't know it was wrong because the same thing happened to me four years ago or this has always happened here. So to your point, if you ever hear, well, that's just blank, enter that sport, that's a red flag, right? And since hazing is, since people start to realize what I work in, I hear, you know, horror stories of, you know, young, young boys and young men coming through the hockey ranks, and I'm sure young women as well, um, with these ritualistic initiations. At the basis of all of this, though, I'll, I'll say that it comes from that, you know, toughen up mentality of sport where you have to earn your keep, where you have to prove yourself. Um, and so all of it gets wrapped up in that, including the beratement and the, you know, the ab- much of the abuse we see is based on that, what I will just describe as old school mentality of how to get the most out of your after. Okay. So that's, um, that's something that needs to shift. A very popular guest on this program, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Mr. Yves Giroux, is back with us. Mr. Giroux, how are you? I'm good, thanks. And you? I'm doing great. I'm just curious. I always ask people toward the end of the year, what kind of year has it been? So I ask doctors, I ask politicians, I ask everybody. So the parliamentary budget officer, what kind of year has it been? Uh, It's been a rather busy year. So I thought that uh, the pandemic year, 2020, was very busy, but uh, 2021 was busy and 2022 didn't disappoint either. The government ensured that we had lots to uh, to talk about and, and parliamentarians also asked us lots of very interesting questions, which we endeavored to respond to, and that kept us busy throughout the year. You know, people have long memories. <laughs> I just received an email from uh, Tom in Toronto, and he wanted to know if that bet was ever finalized between you and me about who was buying who a beer or several beers. I don't think it was. No, uh, it was not. I'm going to have to go back to, and listen to that program and see what the parameters were. I, you know, this is what people like about you, though. You come on the show, you provide the information that we need to know about government spending and where we are. But you do it with a sense of humor as well, and you're able to com- communicate with us. So just on a, in a general sense, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, now, let me ask you this question. In um, Earlier this year, November, you suggested that the liberals, the current government, did not show fiscal restraint in the fall update. Could you expand on that, please, and then let us know why in particular, or if, the, or if this is a time in particular, where fiscal restraint should be exhibited by the federal government? Well, I, I mentioned that because before the fall economic statement, 
the government and the Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister had mentioned on a couple of occasions that the government was going to keep its powder dry in the false statement to respond to uncertainty around the world. So, um, like many people, I expected to see a fall economic statement that would be along those lines. However, when we saw the fall economic statement, the government has been able to benefit from better than expected economic growth and inflation, which together has contributed to generating about $81 billion in fiscal room over several years. So $81 billion in unexpected fiscal room in November compared to the projections in April, that sounded like a good surprise. However, in that same fall economic statement, the government proceeded to spend over $52 billion of that fiscal room for maneuver. So that's why I said at the time, I don't call that keeping your powder dry. If you spend the vast, well, if you spend more than half of the unexpected fiscal room that you suddenly have, uh, that doesn't leave a lot left to respond to unforeseen circumstances, which could very well happen with an economic slowdown, with what's happening in Ukraine, and God knows what else could happen, including pressures from provincial premiers for more transfers from the federal government to provinces to respond to health care pressures. So this is the macro version of what happens to all of us. We have a certain amount of finances coming in. We may have a certain amount of money set aside. We have a margin within which to operate. But if we constantly live on the edge of that margin, we're one step, two steps away from being in significant trouble or potentially. We already know that 50% of Canadians, pollsters have been told this repeatedly, 50% of Canadians are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. So we can't have governments operating on that same principle Am I understanding you correctly? Is the metaphor appropriate? Uh, I think it is appropriate. There's there's a big difference, however, between households and the government. Households will, like sadly, will all uh, end up in the grave. So we have a, a finite timeline, whereas governments survive us. And governments have much more capacity, much bigger capacity to borrow to, to face unforeseen events. So we are... Uh, different, but but your metaphor is is right. I think it's totally appropriate. And I was going to to say uh, the government seems to live like uh, like most Canadians who who are two hundred dollars from not making ends meet. So it, the government seems to be reflecting the way Canadians or some Canadians live. Yeah, and it's worrisome. Again, going to what you talked about, and that's the uncertainty, both at the national level and at the international level. We don't want to know what's going to happen in this world, and we need to have, as you said, we need to keep our powder dry. Now, you expressed concerns on my program, Mr. Giroux, earlier during the pandemic about how the federal government was spending billions of dollars at that time without accounting at all to Parliament and therefore to Canadians how and on what those monies were being spent have you since been able to determine where those billions of dollars went? And, and there's also a news story. I don't know. Uh, I'll ask you about this. There's a news story that you told the Commons Government Operations Committee that Canada rates worst among G7 nations and in concealing its books from scrutiny by taxpayers. 
Yep, I mentioned that in response to questions by parliamentarians related to how late the public accounts uh, of the Government of Canada were tabled. And the public accounts are kind of the financial statements uh, that indicate to Canadians and parliamentarians what happened after the fiscal year is over. So the fiscal year of the government ends March 31st every year. So you'd expect the financial statements, the public accounts, to be publicly available, all the numbers tallied within six months of the end of the fiscal year. So that would mean no later than September 30th. But last year, the government waited and waited and finally published the public accounts in December. So almost nine months after the start of the new fiscal year. So parliamentarians have to vote and approve or debate how much governments will get to to function, to properly, properly operate. But they don't know what happened in the previous year. So they finally are told in December what happened for the f- previous fiscal year, but the current fiscal year is almost three-quarters over. So there's not that much that parliamentarians can do if they see that something went amiss. So this year, things were a little bit better. Uh, the government tabled its public accounts uh, by the end of October, I think October 27, if I'm not mistaken. But still, the fiscal year is almost seven months over, and that's when the government finally releases the, its financial statements. Mm-hmm. But it, it gets worse when you go down to the departmental level. So the departments of so-and-so, pick a department, they, they have what we call departmental results reports, and that's supposed to indicate to parliamentarians and Canadians how, how, how well or not so well specific departments perform by their own performance metrics. And these were tabled in November. So if you're an MP that has a keen interest in national defense, for example, you have to wait till November to figure out what happened at the Department of National Defense and how they fared on their own performance indicators. So it places parliamentarians in the strange position to having to face funding requests from all these departments without knowing what they did and how they how well they performed in the previous year. So they find out in November that the department of so-and-so did very well or not so well or poorly, but in the meantime, they've had to approve virtually all of the funding for the current fiscal year. So it's, it's kind of um, driving blind, so to speak, or it's not a blank check, but because there are checks and balances, but parliamentarians have no idea what went wrong, uh, aside from hearing from their constituents and anecdotes uh, from the government before they're asked to approve funding. Yeah, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's just that, that's absent um, just basic efficiencies. Somebody should remind somebody that calculators were invented some years ago, and uh, numbers can be arrived at by just pressing a few buttons. I'm being cynical, of course. Um, did we just before we take the break, and we need to do that in about thirty seconds? Did, were you able to find out where those billions of dollars went? that you were concerned about during, when we talked during the pandemic, when the government was spending billions of dollars without accounting at all to Parliament about where the money was going? Well, that's more uh, an issue for the Auditor General, my colleague, Madame Karen Hogan. And she released reports a couple of days ago, and, and she indicated that she had concerns about 
over $30 billion of pandemic spending that went and that ended up in the wrong hands. So she did a, mm-hmm. an interesting report that suggests the government is not so keen on recovering these amounts that are have probably or could have been paid, paid or uh, unnecessarily. So it, it's not my responsibility to figure out where the money has gone in the past. I'm more concerned about the the, the future. Okay. Mr. Giroux, uh, two months ago you suggested a recession isn't expected in Canada in 2023, if I remember correctly. What do you expect? <laughs> I expect something <laughs> that will be probably not a recession, but a marked slowdown. So we had quite robust economic growth in 2021 and 2022, at least in the first half of 2022. Uh, however, the monetary tightening, so that's the increases in the Bank of Canada rates, uh, will probably or has already started to slow things down uh, in the economy. And I anticipate that this will continue at least in the first half of 2023. Uh, so not a recession, not necessarily a recession. But a recession is possible, for example, if the Bank of Canada really goes full steam ahead in increasing interest rates. For example, if the bank thinks it's necessary to increase the rates further to uh, return inflation to the 1% to 3% target band that it, that it has, or should it want or should it desire, should it decides that it needs to increase interest rates further to, uh, to restore or reinstate or maintain its credibility. So that's, that's the big unknown. How far will the Bank of Canada go in increasing its interest rates? So if they leave the rates as they are, 4.25%, uh, we think a recession is not a foregone conclusion, and it could be what we call a soft landing. I say the Bank of Canada, but it's also dependent on what other major central banks in the world will do, notably the Federal Reserve. So I think a recession is not unavoidable. We could be in a soft landing. And even if it was a recession, and a recession, I I mean, uh, the way it's conventionally defined, two quarters, two consecutive quarters of negative growth, so contraction, I don't think it will feel like a recession, like people usually have in mind when we we hear the word recession, uh, probably because the labor markets are so tight in most parts of the country. So even if there was a recession, it wouldn't feel like massive layoffs and hard times to find a job because of the situation in the labor market. Yeah. And there are the variables and the unknowns, which you spoke of earlier in the program. But plus, would that not also affect then, or should it not affect, the government's um, freedom to, to spend, brings us back to what we talked about earlier, and, uh, and then also make it incumbent on, uh, I'm asking you for editorial opinion, I think, uh, make it incumbent on, on governments to report their, their spending sooner. Absolutely. So if we are faced with a a slowdown that's deeper than expected, the government's finances would be affected, but it wouldn't be anything like we've seen in 2020, 2021, when governments 
at least the federal government, ran a huge deficit of over $300 billion. So it would push up the deficit by $10, $12, $15 billion. That is, assuming they just let automatic, automatic stabilizers such as employment insurance kick in, that they don't embark on additional new spending. So people listening might say that's a, a heroic assumption to make, and granted, they may be right. So if the government decided to counter a marked economic slowdown or a recession with significantly more spending, then the deficit would rise by more than 12 or $15 billion. So it would, it would rise significantly more. But yes, it, it would certainly help if the government was more transparent and more timely in disclosing its financial situation in allowing parliamentarians and Canadians to make these trade-offs. Do we need more government intervention or okay. are we okay with the current uh, stabilizers that exist? The issue of the Federal International Trade Minister, Mary Ng, determined to have uh, contravened the Conflict of Interest Act by the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion. Consequences? An apology. Now, it doesn't, and I said this before, it doesn't appear that long ago, it's 20 years, but ultimately not that long ago, Jean Chrétien accepted the resignation of Federal Defense Minister Art Eggleton from Cabinet concerning an ethics violation. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, and Democracy Watch is calling for action against Minister Ng. Duff, thank you uh, very much for taking the time. Are you surprised at how this has developed? We have Mario Dion with his you know, conviction of violating the, the Conflict of Interest Act, and uh, the minister writing an apology saying sorry. That's it. We're, uh, in a, we're in a new world now. Yeah, a bit surprised uh, that Mario Dion found the minister guilty only because he has ruled over in other cases and uh, ignored evidence, um, most particularly with regard to Prime Minister Trudeau and the uh, We Charity situation where Prime Minister Trudeau attended the meeting where the grant was approved to uh, We Charity and uh, said he shouldn't have been at the table. And then the commissioner found him not guilty of violating the rules, even though he admitted that it was improper for him to doing that. be at the table and the Conflict of Interest Act prohibits improperly furthering another person or, or entity's interests. Uh, but it's good that he did find the minister uh, guilty in this case because uh, she handed public money to a friend. And um, it sets an important precedent because uh, the public money that was handed was part of her ministerial office discretionary budget. And I would bet that a lot of ministers think they can do whatever they want with that uh, money in the same way they can hire anyone they want other than family members and, and family members of other ministers as their staff, but it's public's money. And it's great that the commissioner set this precedent saying that you can't do this with the public's money. So the precedent is set uh, as far as the, the minister, or at least the, the commissioner making this, this determination. But ultimately, what happens? In a, uh, not so long ago, Duff, uh, this sort of um, decision by the ethics commissioner 
would result in removal from cabinet, would it not? Yes. Uh, but now... back Yeah, if we're looking 30 years ago, the ministers used to resign. Mm-hmm. And then with Chrétien, what happened was there were about 20 cabinet ministers under Chrétien that violated what was then called the Conflict of Interest Code, and including him. Um, and he only uh, fired a couple of them, Art Eagleton being one, again, only though temporarily removed from cabinet and then made a senator. Uh, and um, the other one, the uh, uh, minister uh, removed from cabinet, again, only temporarily. And uh, But at least they were removed from cabinet. The rest of them, though, he let off the hook. So, so Duff, was that the time? Because we're now we're going to get to the sponsorship scandal. That's sort of the, that's in the same time frame. Was that the time when everything changed? When the ethical responsibility, the irresponsibility to behave ethically or be removed from a position of trust, no longer was applied? Was that the was that the was that the shift? That was the time when Chrétien was prime minister. Uh, ministers stopped resigning. Mm-hmm. And uh, it continued through Harper. Uh, only one minister resigned. Uh, he was uh, resigned for contacting a regulatory agency on behalf of a constituent, which ministers are not allowed to be out there furthering the interests of their constituents uh, in, in regulatory legal proceedings because of the power of, of cabinet that oversees those regulatory agencies and therefore could influence their decisions. Uh, but others broke the rules and did not resign, were not removed from cabinet by Harper. And uh, now we're in the time where none of them do it at all. So <laughs> what do you say to the person? one that's dropped out of cabinet or been fired by Trudeau for violating the ethics rules. Yeah, fired for not agreeing with him, but that's a whole different situation. Yeah. That, that he was good at. Um, and, and very competent people like Jane Philpott and uh, Jody Wilson-Rebold. Now, what do, what do you say to, the, to people who might say, well, look, this whole idea of having to live up to a, a code of ethics uh, is, is antiquated. This is a new world, and for to expect a minister to resign over something like this, like Mary Ng's conviction, really is just old world. It doesn't belong anymore. What do you say to people who have that mindset? Well, um, there is a, a law enforcement uh, uh, established principle, which is that if you allow for little violations, you encourage larger violations. And also anyone who looks at situations, organizational uh, culture experts, behavioral psychologists, who look at uh, overall organizations, which of which cabinet is and party caucuses are organizations, uh, that if people get the message from the top that unethical behavior is fine, then they will start violating the rules. Mm-hmm. And so the message from Trudeau has been very clear uh, that you do not have to resign, no matter how um, blatant and bad your your violation is of the ethics law. And it is a law, so they have violated the law. It is one of the most fundamental and important laws to protecting democratic good government, ensuring that uh, cabinet ministers and top government officials and cabinet staff are not furthering private interests, but are instead uh, always upholding the public interest. 
that sets out the rules for that. It's called the Conflict of Interest Act to prevent them from being in a conflict between their private interests or private interests of friends or family or or others uh, and uh, their public duty to uphold the public interest. Okay. So this is a fundamental law. It's, it's right below the Criminal Code of Canada in okay. terms of uh, the antitrust, uh, anti-bribery provisions and protecting integrity in government. All right, Duff, I have, to, to, I, have to, I have to stop here because of where the show's come to an end. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.